Welcome back to Covered in Glory, where my co-host Brett has already broken his New Year's resolution to put in a transfer request to join a podcast in the Champions League. Not one <laughs> hanging around here in the third division. You're too good for this team, Brett. What are you still doing here? Hey, there's something about, you know, I'm going to be the Harry Kane. I'm going to stay with Spurs. I'm going to sulk a little bit. I'm going to sulk a little bit after I don't get my intended transfer, but I'm going to just stay with my boyhood club. Uh, yeah, until the uh, summer window opens, and then you're going to look pretty good in red. I don't know yeah. which red, but I'll, wait, sure I'll wave you when I'm hanging out with Pep next window. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So uh, if you listened last week, and we sure hope you did, we're doing a little bit something different here in Covering Glory right now. We are trying to help you with your New Year's resolution, and that is to pick a favorite Premier League club. Last week, we covered uh, some of the non-traditional powerhouses, let's just call them, the ones that are middle of the table and some climbing, some falling. But this week, we are going to focus on the big boys, the top six clubs in the Premier League, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Manchester City. Uh, There are not Premier League games this week, so we will not be doing picks at the end. If you came here to make money off of Brett's picks, then please come back next week because he's absolutely (laughs) murdering it right now. I don't know what deal with what devil he made, but he definitely has one after Tottenham. Oh, my soul. uh, My soul has been sold. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, at least you got a good price for it. I mean, Tottenham scores on basically the last Last, kick of the game for you to uh, hit a four-pint bet at, what, plus 180 180, uh, over the weekend. So you absolutely destroyed December. Finished the month up 25 units. So I was positive as well, but if you have limited funds to invest, uh, Brett is on a heater and come back next week to keep riding that wave. But now I want to dive right into the club. So anything to say, Brett, before we get into uh, the top six? I mean, I'm excited, man. This is going to be great. We get the Toby experience here of talking about the top six clubs and then we're going to end on your favorite club. It's just going to be 30 straight minutes about why Connor Gallagher is the person you need to watch next year. <laughs> I, I kind of did found or co-found this entire company, just uh, get a microphone to talk about Chelsea for five minutes uninterrupted and knowing that, you know, I can mute you or fire you to try to stop me. So uh, it's finally two years worth of work just comes down to this five minutes a day. And I have a feeling it's going to be entirely worth it. It's really cool uh, to be a part of your dreams, man. all right so uh we will end with chelsea because it's not really fair to follow uh, a team that i'm not that that passionate about but let's go in the reverse order of the table up to that point which brings us to manchester united founded in 1902 even though they started as a different club in 1878 their nickname is the red devils and they have been at old trafford since 1910 uh, which leads us into the very first pro Tremendous, tremendous history on this club. 20 league titles, 12 FA Cups, three European Cups slash Champion Leagues, and a massive worldwide fan base. If you pick this club, it will not be hard for you to find fellow fans. Uh, Other fun things about Manchester United, you will always be involved in rumors for the top players in the world. So if you like the -the off-the-field action, you will be right in the center of it. And guess what? Unlike other clubs, you won't just talk about it you will actually buy some of the top players in the world. Their recent purchases of Paul Pogba and bringing back Cristiano Ronaldo and uh, other big transfer activities that they've been involved in have proved that they will actually spend money to bring in uh, kind of world-class names. Whether they're bringing in world-class talent, that's something we might talk about (laughs) in the cons. 
Uh, if you are naturally a red, then they have uniforms that are going to look great on you. Uh, Old Trafford is probably the second most celebrated soccer pitch in England after Wembley. It is known as the Theater of Dreams, which is, I would say, the best stadium nickname in all of sports. It's just very poetic and uh, and fitting for all the amazing kind of soccer action that has taken place over there in the last 100-plus years. Uh, tremendous, tremendous rivalries with Manchester City and Liverpool, Liverpool, like real blood feuds for both of those clubs. Uh, if you are an American, they are owned by Americans, so there is a certainly tie to your home country. And they uh, often, on the economic side, are the highest earning football team in the world. So there's a lot of money to go back into the club. All right. So those are the pros. Um, Brett and I do want to spend some time on the cons because the same con was at the, at the well, top That's the of most fun part is to spend time on the cons of Manchester United. <laughs> Let's do this. So um, the top players that they do buy seem to perpetually underachieve as soon as they pull on the red kit. You have <laughs> Angel De Maria, Falcao, Alexis Sanchez, maybe Paul Pogba, maybe. Um, they are somewhat a flops. They're being paid massive, massive wages, massive transfer fees. They had just world-beating success in the previous clubs, but for whatever reason, as soon as they show up at Manchester United, uh, some of that achievement and talent kind of disappears. Well, you're missing the most recent one too, which is Jaden Sancho. Yeah, I, I I don't want to close the book on Sancho yet. I'm not even closing on Pogba. Oh, oh we're not yet. closing the book on, on Sancho. We're just simply saying that he went from one of the most exciting young attacking players in the world to not playing at Manchester United under your boy Ole. Yeah. So is that a Manchester United problem or is that an Ole, Ole, Ole problem? I'm going to go with the latter. We're going to find <laughs> out uh, as the season continues to progress, but like signs of life and the talent's still obviously there, but you know what? This is exactly what they said about Falcao and Alexis Sanchez and Angel Del Murillo when they were, you know, early on in the club and all of those books are well closed, done and dusted and they are not bestsellers. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it really speaks to like kind of the, uh, I mean, if, if you're, I would say this, if you're looking for a general sign of dysfunction at a club, right. It's they keep buying good players and the good players get worse when they come to the club. Like that is definitely not the sign of a healthy atmosphere. Um, and, you know, part of it has just been, they've rifled through managers that just didn't suit the club. You know, David Moyes never really got a chance. Uh, we now see what, you know, we saw what he did at Everton. He got, I think like eight months at United before they fired him. Um, they brought in Jose, Jose Mourinho. Mourinho did his typical. They were kind of okay. They fluked their way to a second and then Mourinho burned every bridge possible and was out, um, you know, and then Ole was there and he was constantly considered one of the worst managers in the premier league. Um, and then on top of that, you know, you had Ed Woodward as it was a big figure. Um, he, I think is leaving in February. Uh, he's taking the bullet for their failed super league, uh, uh, join or join up with the super league. Um, but Woodward was kind of, you know, not really a soccer guy that was running their soccer fortunes. And he clearly was not, you know, this was not like a Daniel Levy situation who we'll probably talk about it first. Um, you know, he takes a lot of heat as well. Uh, but the big one is ownership. Yeah. It always yeah, let's get to it. Toby, let's get to it right please now. lead us off and let's start talking about the Glaciers. So they do have an American owner uh, group, but unfortunately those Americans are the Glaciers who also own the Tampa Bay Bucks and their own fans absolutely hate them. Uh, the Glaciers are accused, and I think with a lot of facts behind it, 
of using the team as a piggy bank and saddling it with debt. Uh, when they took over the team, the team was debt free. And then when the Glaciers bought the team, it was basically a leveraged buyout. So what that means, guys, is they put up a small amount of their own money and then borrowed at up to 20% interest rates the rest of the money to buy the clean, the team, which was about $500 million. They then transfer that debt that they took out to acquire the team immediately onto the books of the club. So it's secured against the team itself, who then becomes responsible for all the annual interest payments on servicing that debt which is around, I mean, they've, they've refied a couple of times and consolidated, but it runs $50, $60 million every single year. And the team is responsible for paying it, not the Glaciers. So while they're the highest earning team, uh, a lot of that money, instead of going to players or to rebuilding the stadium or to community outreach or any of the other million things that money could be spent on, it's going to servicing debt so that the Glazers could buy the team in the first place. Uh, yeah. Since then, I'm sorry, Brighton. Oh, no, I, I was going to say, we, like, we've talked about shitty owners in the last podcast, although we have two heroes at Brighton and Brentford, the gamblers that ended up buying their own clubs. Um, yeah, but why I mean, didn't the Glazers just do more gambling and then they wouldn't have needed any debt? I mean, come exactly. On. I mean, yeah, that's the way. Clearly, that's the way to buy a soccer club in the Premier League. <laughs> but no, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about, about you know, shitty owners and, uh, you know, clearly there's some serious issues with you know, some of the foreign run states that have gotten involved with teams, but there's something about like the way the Glaciers took over Manchester United because United didn't have any debts as a club. They're proudly debt-free in 2005, you know, and now they just have a massive amount of debt attached to the club. And it's just, it's kind of like the reason why in Germany and the Bundesliga, we see the 50 plus one rule, right? Like it stops these ownership groups from taking a prior or like primary primary control of the team and doing shit like this, where a group of people can enrich themselves at the expense of the club and then, and, or put the club in, in danger of financial risk. Like for whatever reason, the Glaciers are the most maddening owners. And I know it's probably terrible considering one group like literally murdered journalists. Um, but this is just such a maddening thing. It would just be so hard for me if I was picking a Premier League team to want to attach myself to people like this. Yeah. And look, the debt servicing is bad. The leverage buyout is bad. And the optics of their actions are somehow equally as bad. And like, for example, they are the only Premier League club to routinely pay out a dividend to their owners. Yeah. So they are taking all of the earnings, they're servicing the debt, and you know they are buying some world-class players. Then at the end of every year, they're taking an additional $20 million and paying it to themselves. They're the well, only Premier League club that's doing this. Yeah, then the Mirror just reported too that they, there was an $11 million dividend payout right after Wolves beat them at Old Trafford 1-0. And then the Glaciers got a huge chunk of that dividend payout. So it's, you know, the optics of it look terrible. Um, you know, in some ways, and I can't believe, I cannot believe I'm actually saying this, makes me feel bad for Manchester United fans in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, this, this club, oh. if it was at all functional, run competently, it would be by far and away the most powerful club in the world. Like it, it yes. with its history, with the amount of money it generates, with this worldwide following, this club would be just absolutely blowing the doors off the competition. It would be up winning for the Premier League and the Champions League every single year. Um, in some ways, it makes soccer more interesting that they're completely that they're an absolute dumpster fire with these owners. 
Um, because like it, you know, it, it's another team that, that you can kind of make fun of. It's another team that like, you can kind of see potential in them, but they never really fail. And it kind of keeps things at the top fresh where there's actual like rotation of who the best team in the world is instead of like this global giant, just dooming everybody. Yeah. And look, Manchester United, uh, their fans, I, I, I'm not gonna use the word suffer because they're still fighting for the top six every year. They had this glorious history but they're caviar eaters and all of a sudden they're having to eat dog food. I mean, they have this incredible history. Uh, The shadow of Alex Ferguson will hang over this team forever. The uh, obviously the most successful manager in premier league history. So I have a a question for you. This is, this is a perfect one for you with SAF. Who would you compare SAF to in like another sport? What would, what would Sir Alex Ferguson be in another sport? My, my thought was Belichick. Is that right? Uh, Well, maybe, I I don't know Belichick. I I think fits another team better, which we'll talk about a little bit okay. later. But I mean, okay. we're 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 talking like John Wooden with UCLA. We're talking yeah. Red okay. Orback okay. with the Celtics. Okay. I like. Uh, we're talking like about those. you know a singular figure that led over a generational run yeah. of success with almost no change. But Belichick is is certainly in that same regard. But um, just absolutely. I, I like the hour like back. I like the hour back one. That's a really good one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and he's going to hang over the team forever because they are caviar eaters. They're used to this level of success. Yeah. And then the Glaciers are just started feeding them crap. Um, and when <laughs> I say they, they hate the Glaciers, like they really, really hate them. Uh, last year after the super league, which you alluded to earlier, they invaded the pitch. They actually had stormed like a 60 style sit in storming the pitch, refusing to leave and got the huge match with Liverpool postponed their biggest rival just to protest the action of their owners. Like it is so stinking toxic. Um, yeah. And there's another, I mean, they've also, uh, there's a group I think called the red Knights consortium, which is like basically a fan based group that has tried to actually buy the glaziers out of the club constantly yes. over the last few years. So it's just an ugly situation between supporters and ownership. Like it's just so, you know, tumultuous at this point. Yeah. And, and I don't know, guys, I mean, you get to make your own decisions. We've already gone over the pros. You are certainly joining, as Brett said, the team that should be the shining light on the Hill for all of soccer around the world because of their history, because of their worldwide fan base, because of their resources and everything else. But uh, the current iteration that you would be opting into is not that at present, like a change in ownership. You could say you got in during the downtimes and the change of ownership comes and you might have 50 years of nothing but smiles and rainbows, but just be fully aware of what the situation is right now. And the fan base is angry. You are joining an angry, angry <laughs> fan. Absolutely. I mean, I, I will uh, say this, there, there is a certain joy in watching someone like Paul Pogba play. Um, like I, I, one of my buddies, we talk about this all the time. Like Paul Pogba playing is like a really eloquent thing. And he has been somehow vilified at United as like the source of their problems. But when you watch that dude play, like, I don't know how you can get mad watching Paul Pogba play. Like he'll hit these like beautiful 70 yard cross pitch passes that just land on somebody's foot. And it's just like, how can you not enjoy seeing that? Yeah. No, I mean, watching him play for France growing up, you know, in yeah. his early 20s and things like that, it was like watching Da Vinci. Yeah. It was like, he's doing things that in the history of this medium, I don't think I've ever seen. And he's doing it with flair and art 
that seems like generations beyond his time. And yeah. then he goes to United and he barely gets on the pitch. He pouts. He doesn't have any of that same joy in his game. And it sucks. Like, yeah. you're like free Paul Pogba, go someplace and you're happy. <laughs> so we can all be happy watching you. Yeah. Um, Madrid with Mbappe and Holland. <laughs> whatever it takes at this point. I mean, I don't want Mbappe, Holland, and Pogba on Madrid and then just like routing through Europe for the next five years. But I don't know. I think in some ways as like a, as a soccer fan, you'd welcome that just to see this guy reach his potential because yeah. it's otherworldly. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of comps, the Yankees are the clear comp. Uh, the long time world beating history, um, ownership that used to be revered manager like Sir Alec and and Joe Torrey that, uh, people, you know, still kind of pine for after they saw his successors. I mean, it's a, it's a very one-to-one draw. So if like, if you were picking a baseball team and you would pick the Yankees, this is probably your team. Uh, I hope it's what happens to Duke post coach K, uh, personally. So I think that's (laughs) another way to kind of look at this. Yes. And then the other, the other Coach comp K. Slander, I, I'm here for it. <laughs> the other comp that I would give is they are at present are giving off serious Washington football team vibes, serious, serious Washington football team vibes, an owner that people absolutely hate a proud storied, important franchise being run into the ground, uh, a home field that has, well, FedEx doesn't have any history, but RFK had a ton of history, but like, FedEx is falling apart. The theater of dreams, like the curtains coming down on that place. It is not being held up by ropes. Like props are falling from the ceilings. You're having to dodge things. Like it is, they have not done anything in stadium upkeep. And the like theater of dreams, this is like revered church of soccer. It's going to collapse on top of people one day. It's crazy. Uh, yeah. So they remind me a lot of where WFT fa- fans are with their, owner, uh, with their franchise right now. That's got to be some weird triggering emotions for you, man. <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying to keep this under three hours, and I'm going to need to lay down on a couch to really get the vibe to uh, talk about that team. But that's what you are joining with Manchester United. Just FYI. So who's next, man? Else? Who's next? All right. So let's move to uh, Tottenham Hotspur. Founded 1882. They play in Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, which will soon be sold off to somebody in a naming rights deal, I imagine. Brand new, open in 2019. Uh, Nickname is the Spurs. Let's get into the pros. The new stadium is supposed to be an absolutely amazing place to catch a match. I haven't experienced it yet, but it's kind of open to rave reviews. Right in London, uh, great neighborhood to be in, great neighborhood to visit, and like you know, unlike the theater of dreams is modern and built uh, with all the amenities that you could possibly want uh, strong rivalry with Arsenal. Uh, the North London Derby is one you circle on your calendar when you're looking at the premier league season and, and matches that you're excited to watch. And they have a continually growing rivalry uh, with Chelsea. They have a proper current icon in Harry Kane, who is the talisman who's the captain of club and country for England and has been with the team since he was a kid. Um, they're almost certainly, I would say the least bandwagony of the top six clubs, if that matters to you, since they don't have the historical success of Liverpool or Manchester United or Arsenal, and they don't have the level of recent success of Chelsea or Manchester city. So if you want a team that's competing, but is still actively climbing, I would say they're a pretty good choice. And it's a really good time to join Antonio Conte, their manager that they just hired, uh, Brett and I are both big fans. 
He's a serial winner. I strongly believe he's going to bring them some trophy in the next two to three years. And then he's going to light a fire to every bridge at a three mile radius <laughs> and be gone. That is what Conte does. London will be burning. Yes, it will be the 1600s all over again. Um, they have a really good history of selling players at the right time. So if you're on the economics and you want to look at them like getting full value for a Gareth Bale and some of the other guys they got rid of, uh, they've done really well in that regard. They also have guys like uh, Sun Hung Min, who is an absolute killer. And is a great example of the kind of second-tier stars that often outperform the Galacticos of the world, but without the hype that the Spurs have absolutely excelled at acquiring and grooming. Uh, any other pros that you would kind of throw in with the Spurs? Well, the, the stadium is interesting um, if you're an environmentalist. Uh, it is, I think it was one of the first um, like uh, 100% renewable energy, like carbon neutral stadiums that was that was built for soccer. Um, which is cool because we obviously need that to, you know, not burn alive in the next 10, 15 years. Um, we need more of that stuff. So, you know, it's kind of, um, I look at Spurs and they're definitely, they don't have like some of the same, um, stink on them than some of these other clubs do, right? Like they're, they're kind of the try hard, like you pat them on the head, like, you know, part of the big six, you're, you're happy when they do well, you're not expecting much of them. You know, as you mentioned, they haven't won a trophy, I think since 2008, um, <clears throat> you know, so they're definitely the underdog of the top six is what I, is how I would kind of put them. Um, but you know, it, when you get into Spurs at this point, like you said, Conte is not a guy where you're going to look at him helming Tottenham for five to 10 years. Like that dude is going to be gone in three, given his track record. Um, he'll win something when it's there, but you know, then you're going to not only lose him, but you're going to lose this generation of stars that kind of power the, the Spurs to their champions league final. Um, you know, Harry Kane is getting up there and was almost leaving for Manchester city last year. Um, Sun Young Min is almost approaching 30. Uh, so you kind of have to wonder like, Daniel Levy's kind of the guy behind the scenes pulling the strings. Um, is he going to be able to leverage the new stadium? Uh, any revenue that jumps up if we can ever sort of kind of get clear of this pandemic? Um, are Spurs going to be basically be able to rebuild the roster in a way that keeps them competitive in the top six? Um, and that's going to be the big question. If like you're looking at this team and finding interest in some of the things that they do, is there's a ton of uncertainty to them. Like with United, we always know the money is going to be there for them to buy players with the other clubs that we're going to talk about with the exception of maybe Arsenal. Um, you know, the, the success is almost preordained, right? With Spurs, what happens post Harry Kane, Harry Kane, right? Like where does that team go when they lose, you know, not only a generational star for England, but a guy that's kind of basically been their centerpiece for this recent uh, bout of success. Right. So they're interesting in that regard. Like I would be, very curious because there's no, to me, there's no, like the Spurs don't have the, the Academy history of like some emerging Jack Grealish type superstar. That's going to like continue this bridge after Kane leaves. Unless, unless you're a huge Oliver Skip fan, um, <laughs> that's not going to, that's not going to be like an appeal of like being part of that club. Yeah. I would agree with everything you just said. That might be appealing to some people, right? Like you're not, yeah you're not getting on something that's guaranteed to go to the top. There's a certain amount of unknown in joining this club as a supporter right now, which to some people might be exciting. Uh, but, you know, 
Daniel Levy, there is a certain tax there. Uh, yeah, some people absolutely. love him, people hate him. Uh, and I'm sure you would, you've got a lot more stories, uh, Daniel Levy stories, if you care to share them. The well, other, the other I mean, the, the thing with Levy is it's like anybody that, um, you know, kind of rules with an iron fist over the club, like the buck stops with Levy, you know? And so you're always going to, when you always have like a one man emperor, there's going to be things that he does, you know, and, and recently it's been very strange, right? You know, so he went with Mourinho, which was very kind of unlevy like signing a few years ago paid him a shit ton of money after he flamed out at United um, and then turned around that didn't work out. And then of all the managers in the world that they could have hired, and they originally had a chance to get Conte from the start of the season. And you can imagine where the Spurs would be if they had Conte from the start of the season, they went and got Nuno, uh, Nuno Espirito Santo yeah. from Wolves, who was coming off a real downslide. So like the recent questionable decisions that he's made, um, you know, don't make you super inspired for like post Conte came future success. Um, but he has done a lot of stuff to keep Spurs, you know, a good financial situation. Um, they typically have been, you know, kind of above average in terms of the players that they brought in uh, as far as transfers. Um, so, I mean, you know, again, it's with every executive, even in, in any sport, even the good ones, it's always a mixed bag, right? But Le recently, Levy's been missing the mark with some of the things that he's been doing. Yeah. Well, here's what I'd say, adding on to those cons. Um, they often get owned by other teams and transfer targets. They're used to drive up the price, and then they go to a team with maybe more secure Champions League uh, places or greater ambitions. <coughs> so getting scooped at the end by teams with bigger checkbooks over and over again and it gets a little bit annoying. Uh, they kind of feel like a perpetual bridesmaid. And look, if if even Harry Kane is trying to get out, you got to think twice about getting it. Uh, this is the guy who knows the most about the club and spent the most time there, and he's kind of agitating for a move, and uh, that should give you pause. I'd say overall the list of pros isn't quite as strong as the other five on this list. I think it's a really good like compromise pick, but – who wants to compromise here? It's like having the choice of any beach to go to in the world and you pick one in Galveston, Texas. Yes, it's a beach. Yes, it can be a fun place to visit, but you have the chance to go anywhere. You could have gone to Hawaii. You could have gone to the Italian Riviera. You could have gone anywhere you wanted and you picked Galveston. That's how I feel about picking Tottenham <laughs> versus these other five. So the, uh, the comps that I would give for, for American teams – I think of them like a Mets or a White Sox, uh, not a complete disaster like the Clippers or Jets, but second cities and major, major towns that have certainly had some success throughout their history and are always somewhere in the mix, but not somebody you would ever say, oh, those guys are always at the top. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and like you said, like they, there's just something so unsexy about like the appeal of Spurs, right? Like you, cause I mean, the thing is, it's like, you're really, you're hoping with Spurs that when they bring in a transfer signing, like they're not signing Jaden Sancho and then fucking him up. Like they're signing Tenge and Dombele and hoping he's actually good, you know? So it's like, you, you have this, like, there's nothing like, there's no hook that like really catches you where you're just like, man, like this club has just got like this, you know, they're this unpolished gym, like everything is kind of second tier with them as a club. And, you know, they, they had a great run and that's the kind of thing, like when they made that run to the champions league, a final, and they lost Liverpool, like that, that's what makes that stuff really exciting in some ways is because, you know, there's nothing like endearing about them until they do something cool. 
right? Yeah. Um, so, but it is it, for the most part, it's it's a very bland experience, kind of. I think being a Spurs fan. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up the Spurs. And before we get to our next team, which is Arsenal, we're going to take a quick break. Okay, we're back and we are going to take a trip over to Arsenal. Founded in 1886, they are known affectionately as the Gunners and kind of unaffectionately as the Gooners. Uh, And they play at the Emirates, which opened in 2006. So a lot of pros with Arsenal, even though I don't particularly care for them. Uh, They have a great history and they had one of the most famous seasons ever Probably the most famous season in the Premier League other than Leicester's title win, which was the 2004 Invincibles when they didn't lose a single match. Uh, They had a legendary manager in Arsene Wenger, uh, legendary, retired in 2018, a lot of successes in the 2000s, uh, the 2010s, might have fallen off quite a little bit, but still incredible record in the FA Cup. Uh, So if that you know, historic and important uh, competition is key to your heart, then Arsenal are, you know, arguably the best at it. Uh, They have the longest streak in the top division in England. They have been in the top division in England since 1914. So long, long, long history of success here. We're not talking about a yo-yo team that really goes up and down or has had uh, highs and lows and the lows are giant dry spells where they fall to the second or third division. I mean, they have just been sitting at the top of the division for 107 years. Uh, They have really strong rivals in Tottenham. We talked a little bit about that when we were reviewing the Spurs um, in their section. Iconic uniforms, great mix of the red and the white. Um, I'm definitely a fan of that. And if you check them out, you might be too. Uh, a tremendous stadium and great match day atmosphere. I've never talked to anybody who went to the Emirates and walked away feeling just blase about it. It is a real experience to go to a game there. Uh, and finally, they are another top six Premier League team owned by Americans. Uh, Stan Kroenke, who also owns the Nuggets and the Rams, give you a nice American hook if you're looking for one. What would you say about Arsenal, Brett? Uh, I know you're the one that does the analogies here. So I apologize in advance for stepping on your toes. But Arsenal is like the high school friend that was like the backup tight end on the high school football team that won state. And now, you know, you're all in your 30s and your 40s. And he's still talking about how he won state in high school. Um, yeah, he's Uncle Rico. He can throw yeah. a football over the mountains. <laughs> yeah, the coach would have put me in, man. We would have won state. <laughs> but, but no, it's uh, it, they're you know they're they're a club that's definitely rooted in basically aught success, right? Like Arsene Wenger was a really cool figure in terms of the sport in that time frame, right? Because in England, soccer was kind of shitty and dying. Like they they were playing this really rugged physical style, lump it up to big, tall target men. And here comes this French manager that comes into Arsenal, brings in a bunch of French players, which, you know, now we look at it as like, you know, Billy Bean preferring uh, on base percentage over batting average because Ligon has one of the best, um, like kind of carryover rates for transfers in Europe to the Premier League. Um, But he brings in a bunch of French players. He plays this possession, beautiful passing style, Um, In an era of time that, you know, countries were still kind of uniquely identified by how they played. 
Um, now the Premier League is kind of like the Super League in itself. You have all these, you know, really cool managerial influences. I mean, look at Pep and Conte and Klopp. Like you have, you know, the Italian defensive pragmatism. You have Klopp's German gang and pressing, and then you have Pep's Spanish possession style, and it's all mixed into the one league. But when Wenger came originally, there was still like kind of some divide with how the countries played, right? The, then globalization has really like taken over over the last like five, 10 years, I think, in terms of mixing styles within the sport. But it was a really cool time for soccer. Like, and, and Arsenal was like at the forefront of that, especially with the Invincibles team that won. You know, it was a really cool season. It was, you know, kind of like the culmination of all the, you know, the beat at the forefront of all these tactical things that Wenger was doing, not only in the transfer market, but like just stuff that we look at now and you're like, yeah, no shit. But it was like, you know, guys shouldn't smoke as part of their exercise routine. You know, they should <laughs> they should be, you know, and, you know, they should be actually, you know, being on good diets. They should be training, you know, with physios and stuff like that. You know, Wenger, like, Im, uh, implemented a lot of that stuff that wasn't really seen as, like, part of being a, a you know, a soccer professional at the time. Um, you know, but then obviously the rest of the game caught up and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, our players like shouldn't smoke during halftime. That's that's really bad for us and optimizing performance. Um, but yeah, you know, but then the rest of the league caught up, uh, the premier league got a massive TV deal. And so, you know, something like being in the champions league didn't create this huge financial edge because every team was all of a sudden making a bunch of money through the TV, um, TV contracts. Um, but right when you hit, right when you left, right when Wenger left in 2018 is actually when the Crockies became full owners. And ever since then, it's been a really rocky road and mostly it's just because it's not necessarily because the Cronkies are anything like the, the Glaciers. Although I believe San Cronky just settled a lawsuit with the city of St. Louis where he owes them like 790 million for moving the Rams. Um, but they're not like this total, you know, scumbag ish takeover. Like they, the Crocky sports consortium that they have, like their business is running sports teams and Crocky does run them like a business and in some ways that's good, right? Like they're not uh, tripping over financial fair play. They're making, you know, prudent investments in the club. And, and Wenger was very good about using, even though it's a dismay of fans, using some of the transfer fees, to, like pay off the new stadium. Um, so like there's smarter ish stuff that goes on at Arsenal, but the Crockies have also just like appointed the wrong people. Um, and, you know, their boardroom right now is basically kind of shaped like an American style boardroom. Um, Edu is their technical director, which is like the de facto GM. And then Mikel Arteta is their head coach and, and manager. And I don't know about you, but do you have faith in two people like that continuing to make good decisions for Arsenal? Yeah. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't have faith in them making continuing uh, good decisions for Arsenal, which is really good news as a non-Arsenal fan. Um, and, and I agree with everything you said about the innovation of the aughts. Unfortunately, it was hard to watch that on television. If you were a soccer fan, when yeah. they were creating this revolution, uh, NBC didn't have the rights yet. And so like, you didn't get to see this week in week out. It's kind of like, uh, the Jordan bowls in some ways, right? Like the last dance comes out and everybody's like, holy cow, I can't believe that everything like this, you could watch or like. I was growing up during the Jordan Bulls and you'd see them on NBC or you see them in the playoffs, but we didn't have league pass. You weren't seeing them 82 games. Yeah. And so like a lot of that majesty, it was hard to capture it as an American fan. Uh, so even like the American fans of Arsenal didn't really get to experience their highs like the English did, who got to see a lot more of their matches. Um, and look, I, 
I guess I guess my biggest problem with Arsenal, actually two big problems with Arsenal, personally, just my personal biases, and you guys know I like to admit them, and you know I have a lot of them. Um, <laughs> fourth place became known as the Arsenal Cup. They do not have the same ambition levels of other teams on this list. If they finish in fourth and they made a run in the FA Cup, that was a great season for Arsenal. So if that sounds like a great season to you and you want to like chase for fourth and that's that's your big shiny um, trophy at the end of a campaign, then they are perfect for you. Uh, it doesn't really satisfy the ambitions that a place like Manchester United or Liverpool or Manchester City or Chelsea or in some ways even Tottenham. Even Tottenham, I think, goes after it a little bit more than Arsenal and, and refuses to settle to the same extent they do. Um the second, like, because I didn't see that revolution in the 2000s and because of that globalization to the game that you're describing, because a lot of the arsenal that I've watched has been in the five to ten years that you talked about, I now find their style dull as hell. Um, I watch other teams and I absolutely covet their stars. I have basically never felt that way about Arsenal since <laughs> Robin Van Persie left ten years ago. Maybe a little times watching Alexis Sanchez. Uh, he was fun. You know, Aaron Ramsdale is getting a place in my heart now. Smith Rowe might get there. But for the most part, their players come and go, and I don't want them. And that's not a good sign when your opponents are like, yeah, have them. Great. Roll them out. Uh, That's not a good sign that that's the team that you want to join. I think they're guys that are largely too good for second-tier foreign teams and not good enough for the biggest British teams. Yeah, um, I mean, uh, you, or, you, or or oh. before you dive in, or they're players from the top British teams who are just on the wrong side of the age curve, but somehow still good enough for Arsenal and still getting paid on really high wages. <laughs> so, like, I I honestly think there are brochures laying around Stamford Bridge in the locker room, like it's a retirement home. Like, <laughs> like to spend your golden years taking slow jogs on soft grass each weekend? Consider relocating to the comfort of the Emirates. <laughs> I liked having David Luiz, William, and Peter check in their prime. Thank you very much. I don't know about oh, you. Oh, a William shout out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you hit it right on the head when, like, this iteration of Arsenal isn't fun to watch stylistically, okay? Arteta is basically knockoff Pep. Right. So they play this really slow style, but they also don't really press. So like there is no real enjoyment from watching this current iteration of Arsenal right now. It's just not fun. Like they don't play, you know, like we talked about leads in the last podcast, right? Like we also just fuck defense, like fuck everything. Like we're pressing, we're playing this maniacal style. And that at least like creates a fun match, creates a fun atmosphere. Like when I, when I have to watch Arsenal to make sure I can intelligently talk about them on the podcast or intelligently do something with them in DFS uh, or bet on them or whatever. I'm like, ah, oh, fuck. Like I got to watch Arteta fucking manage again. <laughs> like, that's kind of the feeling that I get, you know? And like you said, there, there are some like, you know, younger guys, you know, um, Saka is uh, is an exciting young talent. Smith Rowe, uh, Martin Odegaard, who has been kind of like a wonderkin for years and bounced around, has seemed to finally like found his footing at the you know <laughs> the tender age of twenty two. Um, finally, seemed to start kind of fulfilling his potential in the hype. Really, um, so like Arsenal has some exciting things. I was on the Ben White fan club or uh, Ben White bandwagon for a long time when he was at Brighton. Um, they they brought him over in a massive deal this summer as a really slick ball playing center back. Um, you know, Kieran Tierney is kind of like the hardworking 
classic get down the full get down the line fullback kind of thing that you can enjoy watching. So like the individual pieces are there, but Arteta is like a manager that sucks the joy out of everything about them for the most part. Um, and even this like run, we we've talked about them on recent podcasts, betting, you know, we don't, are they good? Like, are they not good? Are they just beating up on bad teams? Um, you know, they were kind of hanging in with city until a red card from Gabriel. Um, so maybe they're kind of okay or good, or they're going to finish in the champions league. So, you know, I think they're going to, they're starting to ascend to the top six. It's just been really ugly. Um, also usually the, the big draw, uh, to, you know, coming in and finding a premier league team is it's fun to watch attackers, right? Like we love goals. Like who doesn't love goals, man? Who doesn't love Connor Gallagher storming into the box and putting one past the keeper, right? Oh, <laughs> oh, <yes. laughs> oh God. So going to need to take a cigarette break. Here, folks. <laughs> I'll be handling the podcast for the next five minutes. <laughs> But like they they tied up a bunch of money in uh, in Obama Yang, who then they stripped of his captaincy. Their backup striker is Alexander Lacazette, who's basically should be in NLS at this point. Um, you know, so like it, they don't have really like that sexy kind of goal scoring slick winger. You know, Gam Martinelli is kind of. Um, reinvigorated their season. I think he's a big part of why they made this recent push. Saka could be a superstar one day, but he's still only like 20. Um, but so there's nothing there right now that like really makes you be like, damn, I want to watch a Mar- Arsenal match, which, you know, 15 years ago, we would be all about watching Arsenal matches. So it's kind of a pretty big reversal, right? Yeah. Well, if I was giving them a comp as we wrap them up, I would say maybe the Cowboys or the Bulls like had these dynastic runs and have been chasing that success ever since. They definitely have a uh, piece of the 1972 Dolphins in their DNA, like the only undefeated NFL team that we have to hear about forever. It is the glory of that franchise. Um, And some people now find them insufferable with their champagne parties at the last (laughs) loss every year. That's a little bit of Invincibles. Um, or I, I think the ones that are probably, as I was thinking about last night, like the most square on the head, uh, the Steelers or Notre Dame football. Long history of contention, but a long time since they were actually like put a sustained run of uh, four or five, six years of dominant success on the board. Yeah, I mean, I, I like all those. I think the Dolphins one is is pretty apt in terms of you know, they had this iconic team back in the day. And then now like, you know, the dolphins are fighting for playoff spots, or at least they made the playoffs last year. Uh, some football knowledge, who knows? I still have that. Right. Um, you know, but it was like a total uninspiring thing. And if Arsenal finished fourth, it's not going to be like the super inspiring thing, even with all this young talent until we actually see like the crockies hire people in the boardroom that are going to make decisions better decisions going forward. But, you know, again, that that history of, of Arsenal kind of being a game changing team in the Premier League is still a pretty cool draw, though. I would say that. Yeah. All right. Let's get to the three most expensive items on the menu. The real the real showcase teams right now, I'd say, in the Premier League that uh, a lot of you, I think, will end up gravitating towards. I, I could be wrong, but uh, these are kind of the creme de la creme at present. I would I would posture. Let's start with Liverpool. Uh, Founded in 1892, nicknamed the Reds, and they have been playing at Anfield since they were founded. Uh, Pros, and there's a lot of them. So, Brett, I know you're going to slop all over the place with their style of play, so let me just get these out of the way first. Uh, 
The singing of You'll Never Walk Alone before every match might be the best tradition in all of world football and arguably all of sports. It it's just puts tingles up at your spine. Like think about everything that you love about what your college does or the single best college do, uh, do in terms of their traditions. And that's how You'll Never Walk Alone lands at the pro level because of the connection to the fans and the team and the community and the town that they're in. Uh, their current style of play, and Brett, I'm sure, is going to elaborate on this, heavy metal football is probably the most entertaining and devastating in the league and maybe the world right now. They have world-class options all over the pitch. Saleh, Mane, Alexander-Arnold, Robertson, Van Dyke, Thiago, Allison. I mean, these are just absolute top players that you couldn't really even get improvements for. Um, they're on an incredible, incredible hot streak, just like my beloved co-host here. Every single decision and signing seems to be working out for them right now. They have uh, tremendous rivals in Manchester United um, and Everton. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, their current manager, is on his way to legendary status. It's like getting Sir Alex Ferguson or uh, Arsene Wenger before they lost their fastball. So when we talk about like the great runs those managers went on, you'd be getting them in the middle of them, not uh, looking back on them. They have the most European championships of any English team, so no one can really doubt their history. The blood red instead of the bright yet uniforms are very distinctive and very sharp. Uh, I'm a big fan of them. They also have American owners, uh, including LeBron James, if, if that's attractive to you. Uh, they have no foreign states or oligarchs involved, <laughs> unless you count our friend Alec, whose only war crime is the number of texts he sends Sal about the Charlotte, the Charlotte Hornets. <laughs> um, and look, they have an amazing, amazing history of success mixed with tragedy that has led to this tight-knit fan community that's uh, just one of a kind. The cop section at Anfield is arguably the most famous seating section of the Premier League. They're incredibly popular. Uh, they have they have tragedy. They have success. They have the full run of human emotions encapsulated and captured in one club. Uh, you wouldn't have a hard time finding fellow fans. You'll never walk alone. They are a team that it's unlikely, unless there's a change of ownership that completely changes the course of this franchise, that you're going to regret or be embarrassed to select. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I'll put it this way. When I was uh, trying to figure out my own soccer fandom back as a, a youth, my buddy Max, who's a, a big Liverpool fan, was just like laying out basically all the, the history of Liverpool. And I kind of said, eh, like, fuck you, man. Like, our relationship is antagonistic. I'm not going to pick the team you root for. I'm going to pick the team that's your rival. Uh, that was a pretty big mistake on my part. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Liverpool are, we talked a lot and I fawned a lot over Brighton and Brentford. As you know, I gave my used car salesman pitches to why those would be your non-top six teams pretty hard. Um, but, you know, Liverpool are basically a Brighton and Brentford with a shitload of money, a shitload of history and a shitload of fan support. Um so like Michael Edwards was basically running kind of like the director of football for Liverpool for a long time. Um, they are famous for kind of hiring basically like a bunch of PhD guys to run their, to help with their transfer findings and, and their scouting and just player acquisition. Um, part of the way, reason that Jurgen Klopp is there is because of that back room where he had, because if, if this probably seems like ancient history now, 
but Klopp's Jurgen Klopp's last season at Dortmund was kind of a disaster. Um, and it definitely sullied his star a little bit. But as we know more and more about soccer analytics and how long-term trends play out, we just realized that basically Klopp was unlucky with injuries and just results. Um, his, his performance of his team didn't really suffer, just basically got unlucky. And Liverpool noticed that. Um, the reason that Mo Salah is at Liverpool is that Mo Salah had a down year in terms of finishing his chances. Liverpool's backroom staff identified him as like an undervalued asset. And that's why Mo Salah came and became a superstar for the price of a guy that you would never typically associate with getting a superstar for. Um, so they're very cool in terms of the fact that, like you said, they don't miss, you know, even with Navi Keita, who was kind of supposed to come over as this do everything midfielder. Um, you know, he hasn't been what he, what we maybe thought he would be when he came over, but he's still been like a valuable piece, especially as the midfielder shifted around. Um, you know, they, they just constantly seem to be on the right thing. And the, the crazy part is, is, you know, not only do they have stuff like that, um, but they still have young players that are like Trent Alexander Arnold came from their Academy and became this like weird, enigmatic, super creative right back. <laughs> and this guy came out of their Academy. Um, you know, Harvey Elliott goes down with that, that gruesome leg injury in the first match. And you kind of forget that like Harvey Elliott basically took Curtis Jones, uh, another 20 year old promising midfielder spot. So Liverpool like has it all going. You know, they, they have the history. They, they don't have the dysfunction of United. They don't have the oligarchs of Manchester city and Chelsea. Um, if, you know, if you were going to do, if I was going to do it all over again, I definitely probably would have been like, man, maybe that Liverpool team was one I should have started connecting my emotions to. Um, but they're, yeah, they're super fun to watch. Klopp has even hinted um, that he might now stay past 2024 after it was kind of rumored that he was going to take a break from management at that point. Um, but, you know, these organizations that are well-run, they don't burn out managers because the managers know they have something good going. And, uh, you know, having – I mean, where would you put Klopp in terms of the best managers in the world? Probably easily top three, right? Yeah. I mean, there, we, we talked about this like very early on in our podcasting run. There's only a few managers that seem to truly manner, uh, matter. In the Premier League, it's Pep, it's Klopp, it's Tuchel, and maybe it's Conte. We're – he definitely mattered in the past. We're going to see if he uh, matters again. And then you extend that out to the world and there's three or four others, but like it's, it's a clear tier where there's maybe eight to 10 guys in the world that operate on this level. And almost no one except for his biggest possible hater could ever argue Klopp doesn't belong in that class. Yeah. And the, and the thing about that difference between like him and Pep, right. is like Klopp has personality. Pep's kind of like the savant, right. You know, he doesn't, other than like his rant about John Stones having big balls, um, you know, Klopp will be out in the media either complaining about something or, you know, having fun interactions. Um, and his players seem to absolutely love playing for him. Like, so the fun part about like getting, being involved with Liverpool is like, you get a manager that's not like great, but he's like a personality, right? Like, and that's always fun. You know, Pep is, is an amazing manager. We'll talk about him and where he sits and things. But like, you know, he just doesn't have that same Klopp-ish charm. Um, and even yeah. as an Everton fan where I'm supposed to be trained to hate Liverpool, like even when, once they landed Klopp, I even texted my buddy that I was talking about. And I said, man, it's just like going to be really hard for me to dislike Liverpool. Like, I love Klopp. Who doesn't? 
Yeah, I mean, he even calls his style of play heavy metal football. Yeah. It's it's right on point. Like he is rock and roll, he is heavy metal, and Pep is jazz and classical music. Right. Um, exactly. You know, some people are into jazz and classical music. God bless you. I'd rather hear you know a loud guitar riff and bang my head a little bit, and that's what uh, that's what Klopp's providing. Yeah. No. Absolutely. So. so <laughs> Uh, coincidentally, even though they are a very excellent choice and, and one that I think you could get behind, we're not going to talk as long about them just because they're so great. So yeah. our list of cons isn't quite as long as it is with the first three teams we discussed. If I, when I was doing my notes last night, uh, I didn't struggle to come on with any, but it's not a long list. Uh, first of all, it would be more fun if you had joined them before they won the Premier League two years ago, yep. as that had been their white whale, and it would have been really, really fun to be part of the chase. Um, they do have Trent Alexander-Arnold, and they do have some other promising youngsters in the academy, but not as many homegrown stars since the days of Stevie G. Uh, there's a lot more like dominant transfer activity, so it's lost a little of the romance that uh, it previously had, but now I'm really picking nits. And Look, you are likely joining at the club's peak, for better or for worse. Uh, it's great to be at a, uh, something that's at the very top to enjoy that time. But, you know, you didn't get to be part of the climb. You didn't get to be. You, you got to the top of the mountain, and eventually it'll go down, but it's probably going to plateau for a little while. And, you know, if I was really, really digging down, they're a little smug. little <laughs> smug in Liverpool, I would <laughs> say. Uh, anything you would add to the list? No, I mean, you know, again, it's, it's always, um, you always wonder because Liverpool has everything kind of timed up with this generational drop off, right? Like Mane is getting up there in terms of footballing years, uh, Firmino, Sala, and then, you know, Klopp, we still don't know if he was going to leave after in a couple of years. And so like, that's, those are always big questions. It's like the same thing we talked about with Spurs. Like when you get this generational group, um, it's not like, even if you have a good process in place, which Liverpool clearly does, it's always an uncertainty that it's going to like roll over and continue the same success. Right. Like they hit on Salah once, like, can they find another Salah again? Can Trent Alexander Arnold, like, you know, rise to carry every, every lift everything up, even if they don't. Um, so there's definitely like questions going forward, which makes it not makes you not super bandwagoning because like you said, you're at, you're going to come in at their peak right now. But you are taking a risk that on the other side, you know, maybe things get a little dark for them again. Maybe there's another valley, um, you know, because Michael Edwards is left. If Klopp leaves too, that's two huge figures that were instrumental in kind of building this current iteration of Liverpool. And then there's the actual players. But, you know, all that is probably outweighed by the fact that, like, it's really fucking fun to watch Mo Salah and Trent Alexander-Arnold play football. Yeah, and Van Dyke in the back. I mean, my God. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I agree with everything you just said. Um, if Klopp leaves in 24, then it'll be a really interesting transition time. If he doesn't, like, enjoy the ride. As long as he's there, I think they're going to continue to compete at this level. If I was looking at comps for American sports, the obvious one is the Red Sox, which plays with Isley with the Manchester United being the Yankees. Um, elsewhere, I think you're, like, becoming a fan of the 80s Celtics. Or like the Rick Patino Kentucky teams for those of you who might have um, you know been alive twenty years ago. Um, these are just teams that played really innovative styles that that uh, were incredibly fun to watch, a lot of success, and people you know really gravitated towards them and tried to learn the lessons and repeat them for years on end with a lot of 
a lot of action. Uh, the, the other comp I'd give is like if you became a Georgia football fan after Georgia wins Monday and wins again next year. <laughs> like you have, they have the history. They had the struggle. But you're joining after that is over and Georgia is now like trumping Alabama on the reg. I, I think we, we missed the mark with you, man. I think we need to just start a separate. I mean, we have a bunch of side podcasts that we're trying to, to host here, but <laughs> just an analogy, analogy, sports analogy podcast with Toby. That's what we need. That's oh, coming up. Oh my gosh. Uh, oh, I don't know if I want to unleash that on the world, but maybe <laughs> if enough people don't pick Chelsea and they pick one of our rivals, then that's what I'll threaten them with. <laughs> um, all right. We have two teams left and we're going to start, uh, you know, unlike the rest of our pattern, we're going to the top of the table so I can finish with Chelsea. Uh, Manchester city founded in 1880. They are known as the Citizens or as City. If you say City, most people will know who you're talking about. They play at the Etihad, which uh, was opened and they moved to in 2003. So somewhere between the modern stadium of the Spurs, but but not, you know, the same history as as some of the other grounds that we've discussed. All right, let's do the pros here. They are a true freaking juggernaut in the middle of their dynasty. Um, a real, true, God-honest dynasty is unfolding before our eyes. Even in the best league in the world, they are fairly close to a class to themselves right now and have been over the last four or five years and and maybe longer. Uh, Unlike Liverpool, which has added basically all the silverware to the trophy case recently that they care to have, they still have not won the Champions League, so there is a dragon left to slay. Uh, It's a good time to join since they are favorites to win this year, but they're favorites every year and somehow find a way to crash out, which becomes part of the fan journey and something that uh, I would personally want to be on before, you know, the silverware is lifted and the confetti falls. Um, They will never, ever be outspent and they keep their core players seemingly forever. So you can get comfortably attached and grow with the team. Uh, They have what many consider to be the best manager in the world and Pep Guardiola and the owners back him over and over again with players that are perfect for his style. They don't just go out and buy guys and say, Pep, you go figure it out. They buy Pep's guys, even if, no matter how much it costs them to plug into his system. Uh, the 2012 Premier League title was truly epic. Uh, imagine, you know, the Red Sox when they beat the Yankees in 2004. But imagine that was in the World Series and they went into game seven down six runs in the bottom of the ninth, and then hit a grand slam on the last pitch. That is how dramatic that 2012 I, I championship stop you was. Right there. If you have not listened to Martin Tyler's call of that moment, just, just pause the podcast, go on YouTube, type in Aguero with multiple O's, and then listen to Martin yeah. Tyler's call. If that doesn't give you goosebumps about a sporting moment, like you're dead inside. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, just go to Siri and say, hey, Siri, play quip. Aguero! <laughs> and it'll bring it right up. Um, like uh, Chelsea and, and to a certain extent Liverpool, they are very, very international, but still have plenty of English talent. So you get a great mix of both the domestic and the international flavor on your team. Uh, and they also have American connections because they own uh, New York City FC in the MLS. They own clubs all over the world, and that's one of them. So if you're in New York or the New York area and you uh, want to gravitate toward a local club that has a tie to a Premier League, that's one of the few options that are actually available to you. What would you add for the 
the pros, Brett, that isn't the obvious that I've already hit on. I, I, I freaking, I, I hate saying this, but I freaking love Manchester city. Um, ever since Pep has come, it, it, they have been just a cool team to watch because uh, Pep is the, he gets a little bit of the Phil Jackson thing, right? You know, like where yes. he always, exactly always coach, right. he always coaches the best teams. And yes, I have, I, I have, there's a whole nother side pod. We have so many side pods. It's just, we got to start writing this down. I think Phil Jackson, actually, some of that criticism is legit. Pep is truly one of the most brilliant problem solvers in um, recent managerial history. He gets a team and where Conte is kind of a manager that organizes him defensively, Pep figures out how to organize a team to completely dominate the ball without giving up counterattacks. And Grace Robertson, who's a, a fantastic writer, if you have any interest in this, uh, did a really long, really cool spread about Pep's history, basically of um, constantly reconfiguring himself to avoid the counterattacking fate for his possession-heavy teams. Um, and in those articles, you know, it's basically laid out about like Pep's um, really interesting pragmatism, his tactical tweaks. Like he's just uh, um, he's a savant. I, I talked, I, I used that word before. But it's always really cool because you'll get these iterations of City. And when they originally went started this dynastic run in the last few years, um, he did it with Fernandinho at the base. And I've made jokes about Fernandinho being basically a statue that needs to gracefully transition to MLS. Um, and then he transitioned to Rodri. And it wasn't like he got this one-for-one swap at like a really critical position. Um, Fernandinho was like the master of the tactical foul, like the super rangy Brazilian defensive midfielder. And Rodri was like the super technical, like possession fulcrum could just like ping balls change uh, sides of the field. Um, and so there was like a drop off and then Pep was like, well, okay. If I put this guy at the base of the midfield after getting ripped apart at, at the start of last season, by Lester, he's like, I need to figure out a way that we can play this way with this guy without having with having someone to break up counterattacks. So he turned like Kyle Walker, who came to City as this blazing, you know, down the touchline, get down the touchline at breakneck speed, whipping across, attacking fullback into like the world's greatest counterstopper. And he does this shit every year. And Byron, he had Philip Lom, who was like, considered one of the best right backs. And Pep's like, no, I think that guy is going to be my possession fulcrum as a six. And he moves this generational talent of a fullback like into his midfield with like no problems. And he does this constantly. And and at least to me, I find that shit fascinating because yeah, it's one thing if you're like Real Madrid and you just fucking buy the best players and then you hire Carlo Ancelotti to kind of vaguely put him in some formation. Like Pep, intricately and deeply thinks about the game. His criticism is that he sometimes overthinks things in big matches, but he builds these beautiful possession oriented machines. They always keep the ball. They're always have pressure on the opponent's goal. They're always playing this beautiful, attractive soccer. And on top of that, I'm going to, I'm going to come out of the darkness here. I'm a huge Phil Foden. <laughs> I'm a huge Phil Foden fan. Yeah. Talk I about, knew that about you. And Holland, but I think Foden is going to be one of the generational superstars that we talk about. Uh, I think he is going to be incredible. He's had some off the field stuff with the national team and Pep recently has been pissed at him for how he's handled, you know, I mean, he's a 19 year old kid with a shit ton of money. He's obviously going to fuck up every once in a while there, but 
Um, you know, he's a generational talent. So you're going to get an amazing manager with a supremely talented team with like a possible, I'm not going to put this type of pressure, but like messy light type figure that's emerging within that as well. Yeah. Well, going back to Pep for just a second, I'm building on my analogy game. Like, you know, those disaster movies where it's like, hey, the world's going to end and we have to build one machine to escape the earth and save humanity. So like they'd be like, all right, who do you want? And you might be like somebody from SpaceX or somebody from NASA. And they're like, no, bring me MacGyver. (laughs) And then MacGyver actually saves the entire planet and the world and he does the best job possible. And then Manchester United would be like, bring me MacGruber. And then everything just blows up around them. <laughs> See, like I said, the analogy podcast and Toby, there it is. Uh, so yeah, I mean, similar to Liverpool, like we could go on and on about their pros. Um, it's an excellent choice. If I was trying to come up with cons last night, they're extremely bandwagoning. Let's not kid ourselves. Give yeah. their current dominance. Um, the run that they're on right now, like, there is little soul to this whole thing. In fact, lack of soul is the biggest reason, biggest criticism I have them in general. I think their stadium lacks a bit of soul. Their, no. uh, their match day experience lacks a bit of soul. They are a cold, calculating, killing machine backed by oil money, which yeah. is what they really have. And they're often accused of financial foul play and they're commonly thought of as cheaters. So if I'm bringing the comp, they are the New England Patriots in 20, like 2007, 2008, 2009. You are joining them halfway through the run with Belichick and Brady. Right and you have to be game. comfortable with that. They are, Exactly. They are Alabama football right now. That is the vibe that you are getting in on. Yeah, I mean, that that's definitely a fair criticism. Um, and obviously, you know, we talked again about, you know, shady kind of sports washing with ownership. Like they're owned by Sheik Munster, that's straight up oil money, a country that has been drilled with, um, you know, labor violations and human rights abuses. Like it's not pretty when you look at, you know, the things pulling the strings, the, the pitch, everything on the pitch is beautiful. Everything kind of above that with is kind of a picturesque of what's going on with what's wrong with the sport um, in a lot of ways. So, but I mean, again, it just, it's so hard because the, the other thing too, that I guess to kind of say about the way they use that money, they could use it in a much more offensive way to our sensibilities, right? Toby, like they could go yes. out and they could throw 150 million every transfer window at like the newest star, the most disgruntled superstar buying Lukaku, whatever. And their biggest purchase was Jack Grealish for hundred million. But that really was like the first time they broke the bank. Every other player on that roster that they've had, they've never really cracked like the top 10 in all-time transfer fees to get them. So they were actually using that money, which is, you know, we can go back and the money is dirty and all that stuff. But they were actually using it in the way that like the casual fan, I don't think gets offended, right? Like they don't just throw money at, at Mbappe. I mean, they might do it with Holland, but you know, they, they haven't operated like real Madrid. Basically they've, they've actually exactly. been very smart and pragmatic. They've built an entire squad. It hasn't been this star studded thing in the last couple of years. Like, okay. Gundogan has led them in scoring. I think Bernardo Silva is tied with like Raheem Sterling right now for this current group and goals. 
So like you're not getting these generational superstars that are ripping things apart that they bought in the transfer market. Like Pep is building a fucking, like you said, a cold solar killing machine. Yeah, and I, I guess the only counter I would have to what you said, because I do agree with with the premise that you just gave, that they could be spending it in a lot more offensive ways. I guess what actually offends me about the way they do it is they haven't even tried to hide the fact that this is what they're doing in terms of financial fair play. Yeah. Like they haven't built the alternative revenue streams. They haven't built uh, a different way to run the club or things like that to build their revenue to the place where they can at least say they're offsetting some of this. It is just oil money and fake sponsorships that pour in to support these goals. <laughs> it's and, definitely been you know, like as, a, as a businessman and a capitalist, us. like I would like to see, I like to see them fake it a little bit. Like, come on. Like at least grift from a charity or something. Don't just dump in oil money like through a sponsorship that's clear as day. At least hide it. Yeah. Be a better criminal. <laughs> oh, my uh, one counter to that is uh try to watch Jack Cancelo play an outside of the footpath that leads to a goal and say that you're not enjoying watching City play. <laughs> oh my god, he's so amazing. He's so amazing. Another, like this is what I'm talking this is what I'm talking about with Arsenal, right? Like I watch Manchester City and I covet Kinsella. I I you know write yeah. poetry at night wishing I had De Bruyne back. Like Phil Foden, like everybody else, like I just watch these players like, oh, my God, what I wouldn't give for them to be wearing the right shade of blue. Uh, so that's a great reason to support them and a great reason to pick them over Arsenal, because I, I do not feel that way about that. <laughs> all right. All, right. Is, all it, right. is it that time? Is it that time? Are you ready? Yeah. Do I right. just need to it's log to co- off at this point and then come back on like 10 minutes later with you all sweaty and red faced or? <laughs> If you want to go stare at a picture of Phil Foden in the dark with your headphones <laughs> off for 10 minutes, I'll find a way to fill the time. Uh, it is now time for Chelsea. The club that I shared last week is is the owner of my soccer heart. Um, and this is going to be a little bit longer, and, and I'm not going to apologize for it because, as I said, my entire career of creating this podcast company is really just about this moment and none other. Uh, Chelsea in – Founded in 1905, their nickname is the Blues. They play at Stamford Bridge, which they have played at since they were founded. Here are the pros. And Nick will obviously hit with the cons, but uh, I have some cons too. I I will try to be not fair and balanced, but we're not all going to flip over because all the rocks are on one side of the scale. Um, Pros. Feel alive. There is never a boring time to be a Chelsea fan. The only constant is change, and while some might find that exhausting, I find it exhilarating. They were positively obsessed with winning the Champions League and finally did so in 2012. In America, the leader of that team would be a deity. They'd have lifetime job security or at least a decade. In Chelsea, he was unemployed six months later for having the audacity to not be on pace to win it again. Imagine if Baylor fired Scott Drew because he lost a couple of regular season games this year. That is what happens at Chelsea. And it's not an isolated incident. Since 2007, they have fired eight managers who have won them a major title for the team. And they fired another four who didn't. It is glorious chaos. Um, It's primarily because they have the highest of high standards. There is no patience. There is no tomorrow. There is only dominance now and zero tolerance for mediocrity. They will never ever settle for the Arsenal Cup. In fact, a Chelsea manager once labeled Arsene Wenger as a specialist in failure for how how content he was to finish fourth. And that's incredibly sick burn. May or may not have put Wenger's career in the ground. The 
The owner heavily invests in this club to support this ambition. This is not an unfunded mandate. It's the exact mirror image of how Manchester United feel about their owner. He is not piling debt on the club, and no one has ever accused Mr. Abramovich of treating this team as his own ATM. The money all flows one way back into the club. Over a billion and a half dollars out of his pocketbook has been interest-free loan to the club since he took ownership to support these ambitions. As a result, we love him. We have agreed not to open any of the Russian oil barrels to find out where this money is coming from. A result of the potent combination of money and ruthlessness, underperformers are simply replaced so you do not have to deal with a player that is endlessly frustrating you for five years like happens at other places. Uh, Fernando Torres aside, Saul will disappear and he will join Danny Drinkwater as merely a joke on Reddit and he'll be replaced with someone else who's ready to become a legend. World-class players galore come to this club because of their ambition and you get to enjoy each and every one of them. And they end up bonding with the club because of this winning mentality. The, the, the bonds are deep, they are emotional, and they earn the title of proper chills. Because of the standards and because of the fact that most of its success came in the last 20 years, this is not a fan base that spends a lot of time pining for the past. They are not talking about being able to throw a football over the mountains in high school. They are extremely present and you can feel it. The players can feel it too. We live for the moment, and it's a much happier way to go through life and to be a sports fan. Uh, while the team was heavily built on free spending purchases when Roman Abramovich took over as owner, and he took a ton of well-deserved criticism, that was really jealousy, for the practice, the team has recently severely undercut that argument by producing an assembly line of some of the finest homegrown talent in all of Europe. Mason Mount, Reese James, Andres Christensen, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Trevor Chalaba, uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek all came from the Youth Academy and are all major contributors to the reigning European champions. The idea that Chelsea exists solely because of their ability to spend on free agents should be dead and buried. They can also spend hundreds of millions of dollars on their Youth Academy too. Combine this homegrown talent with the other young players like Kai Havertz and Christian Pulisic who are, uh, you are getting in at a really amazing time to join the club. They are built to replicate, replicate the club's legendary success of 15 years ago when they were led by John Terry, Frank Lampard, Petr Cech, Didier Drogba, proper chills through and through, and guys you could spend a solid decade rooting for. That is when my fan interest uh, grew and expanded and completely took over my heart because of those guys, because they were there for so long, and because of the connection they had to the club and the success they created. No other team is as deep with young talent as the Blues. It doesn't mean they're going to win every year because everyone else will reload, but it does mean that there will be a lot of players with the club for a long time. And just like it happened with me, it can happen for you as your fan club, I'm sorry, as your fanhood develops and takes root. Other reasons. For those of you that are business inclined, they are fascinating to follow as their youth academy has also been turned into a profit center where they develop players and sell them often. They aren't quite up to the highest Chelsea standards. It absolutely burns them sometimes but it has allowed them to compete with the oil money of City and of the legacy fan bases of Manchester United and Liverpool in a really unique uh, and creative way. And it's really fun to follow. Captain America plays for this team. Are you going to pick against Captain America? For those of you who have wanted to see an American compete at the highest level of soccer, and that's your reason that you can't get into sport, Christian Pulisic is doing it right now. 
His goal in the semifinals of the Champions League last year helped propel Chelsea to the title and is arguably the most important goal scored by an American in club soccer history. He's the greatest player our country has ever produced, and he's a blue. You should be too. As a result of Pulisic, in America, they are always in the news and always on TV, which makes them super easy to follow, which is a little bonus um, to his attachment to the club. They also invest heavily in their women's team, which also made the Champions League final last year. I have three daughters, and I can tell you firsthand that representation matters to them. They play the sport, and they love it, and they get to see uh, same-gender people achieve the highest levels of success at the same club their dad roots for. It's been really easy to get them into Chelsea, and no small part is because they could see this winning women's team wearing the same colors and supporting the same badge. The leader of the business and player purchasing practices on the men's side is also a woman, and she runs freaking circles around almost all of her male counterparts. They have spectacular uniforms. It is the perfect shade of blue and is an absolutely awesome crest. Once a blue, always a blue. The legends are treated extraordinarily well, unless they become manager. And players who played at Chelsea in their development years are the top players for half the teams in the league. Seemingly, there's always a Chelsea connection in any game you want to watch, which Brett makes fun of me for all the time. But it's true. The Premier League is dominated with guys who grew up playing at Chelsea or came to Chelsea early in their career, then uh, moved on. And I still feel fondness for virtually all of them, except for Courtois. He can burn in hell. Uh, players from all over the world come play through Chelsea and are major components for their their national team. In fact, last year at the Euros, all four of the semifinalists had a Chelsea player playing in important roles. That extends your fandom 12 months a year, 365. That never quits being a Chelsea fan. As I said at the beginning, it is never boring. Finally, Egolo Conte's smile is better than Zoloff at fighting depression. And our Lord and Savior, Connor Gallagher, will be joining him in the midfield next year. Your life will be better with them and all your teammates and all of their teammates uh, if you make them a part of it. Your floor, Brett, for the counter response. <laughs> I'm somehow supposed to follow that up. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I'm like floored. I thought you were kidding when you said it was going to be a whole monologue, man. But you really, uh, you really laid out the pitch for every. Uh, everybody to come on board the Chelsea fan wagon. Uh, I was even starting to get a little convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I mean, they are a fascinating club. Um, The thing that I guess is kind of controversial in the grand scheme of things is that loan army and the way that they finance stuff. Like we kind of talked about how Manchester city um, basically says like, fuck you, I'm going to do illegal shit (laughs) and kind of rig the finances so I can stay uh, um, on the right side of financial fair play. You know, Chelsea has created this model where they basically have a loan army. You know, they send out kids to all these different clubs. They sell them off. They use the profits to basically kind of boost their bottom line, you know, which again, like you said, it bites them in the ass. Like, you know, and and they generally their player acquisition has been a little bit shaky. This foundational English academy talent that they found. Uh, the one part you did leave out is they were kind of able to find that under Frank Lampard because they had a transfer embargo, <laughs> and they literally couldn't bring in players and kind of accidentally were forced into playing Reese James, Mason Mount, guys like that. 
Um, you know, but yeah. And then after that ban, when they were not allowed to acquire any players and people said that's the only way Chelsea could ever win. You know what happened after that? They won the fucking champions league. <laughs> so dead and buried. They, did. they can win they did. in many they different ways. Notoriously random knockout tournament. They did do that, but twice, <laughs> twice. bitch. <laughs> I mean, Everton is zero. So I really can't even <laughs> I have no footing to this argument, <laughs> but thanks for kicking a man while he's down. Um, no, but I mean, you know, the, the hard part for me with Chelsea is obviously, you know, if you're a fan of like process, right? Like you love the drama. You're, you're just a, you are just a messy bitch with the drama. Um, and they are never going to have a manager. Like Tuchel is kind of already like on the hot seat. Like if they get knocked out early in the champions league, if they kind of sputter to a third or fourth place in, in the premier league, uh, is Tuchel going to be there next year? You know, you mentioned Pulisic, like, is he going to be there next year? Is Rom going to be there next year? Um, if you love drama, if you are Toby and you love drama and you, your favorite show has secretly been like scandal all these years, you, <laughs> Chelsea is definitely the team for you. If you like process, definitely the other big clubs have a little bit of a, a more stable one. Um, yes. but there is something, you know, definitely to the fact that like, it is really whether or not you like it, whether you agree with it, there is a um, you know s- some really cool ingenuity when it comes to the fact that they created this model with the loan army. Like I, I do think it is it is thinking outside the box. It is something that you know a lot of teams with big money could have done, but Chelsea has done it. They've done it first. It's worked for them, and it's created this platform where yeah, you know the general strife kind of has them yo-yoing up and down the table, but that stability is always keep them kept them financially solid. Um, I mean, and again, with the way that they play with Tuchel, it's not super um, exciting to watch right now, but they've also had really exciting teams to watch. And, you know, again, pragmatism kind of sells like, yeah, Tuchel might be boring to watch. They grind out some results and they will under him in the near future. Um, But they have a really cool thing for them going for them that you actually didn't mention in that, if this team turns over, they have a bunch of center backs that are out of contract. They have a bunch of really promising midfielders that they could bring in your boy, Connor Gallagher being one of them. Like there could be a, a total reinvention of this team because remember before Tuchel came, Tuchel didn't come to Chelsea as like the super defensive manager, like his teams, PSG and Dortmund, like they played this like expansive attacking, pressing football. And we haven't seen that. We've seen this really solid defensive pragmatism. But with like Aspelicueta and Christensen and Rudiger and all those guys gone and these midfielders coming in, we could see this whole turnover into this really exciting attacking team as well. Um, so you're also getting a team in transition with some doubt. And and again, the biggest thing is, like you said, I you said it multiple times, and it's the perfect way to end it. If you love drama, Chelsea's the club for you. <laughs> yes, 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 it is. Um, I will throw on some cons. So everybody knows I'm totally in the bag here, but maybe I can fight <laughs> that just the tiniest bit. Uh, the association with Russia is not always ideal for Americans. I mean, unless you're a producer uh, for Tucker Carlson show. <laughs> oh, yikes. Uh, their detractors are uh, often call the team Chelsky. And look, that that's something you're going to own and, um, as being part of this club. Um, they're always going to be accused of buying the titles because of the way the club was built in the 2000s. That, I, I keep saying it should be dead and buried, but it's never actually going to be dead and buried because never let uh, facts get in the way of a good narrative. It's never going to end. 
It's worth noting that all six teams we are discussing today make up the top six and how much they pay their players basically every season. So it's a little bit rich for the Angels and the Red Sox to point at the Dodgers and accuse them of trying to buy a title. That's essentially what's happening here. Um, They're heavily tactical in their approach, and the tactics are always changing because the manager is always getting fired. So as Brett said, this is not a process team because they can't be a process team. They're always bringing in guys with different ideas, but for the same players. So there is a lot of transitions that are painful. Um, sometimes they're really defensive. Sometimes they can't stop a thing. But during these truly magical runs, they fall in perfectly perfect harmony. And like happened a couple of times under Mourinho. It happened under Conte. I think it's happening. It's going to happen or has happened under Tuchel already. Um, and then it's just this thing of beauty. You keep saying that people love the drama or I love the drama. I mean, maybe there's some certain truth to that. It keeps life interesting and it keeps my sports fandom spiced up. And, you know, other people, you might not want Chelsea. Uh, some people prefer stability and 20 years of missionary with the lights off. This ain't that. So uh, as for comps, um, I would say the Warriors and Rudiger is definitely Draymond Green in this analogy. Um, maybe a combination of the LeBron Heat and the Spurs where like they did build a team out of out of superstars. But then like the Spurs, they've now developed players around. Uh, stars to keep them relevant and keep them successful for really long periods of time. Or uh, if you like baseball, a combination of the Braves and the Dodgers Braves having the success because they're having this historic run out of their minor leagues, but the Dodgers buy a lot of players, but they also have a good minor league too. So there's some combination there, but here's the real analogy. And then I'm hanging up my analogy game for the day. They are Keanu Reeves movies. They are taking the red pill in the matrix and finding out how deep the rabbit, uh, the rabbit hole goes. They are jumping out of an airplane without a parachute and point break. They are shooting the hostage in speed. They are killing assassins with a fucking pencil in John wick. You are joining the cast of an incredible action movie with a kick-ass script. So all I can say to that is, whoa. Oh my God. I, I, that's, that's the George Costanza just walk out of the fucking room and the podcast right there. <laughs> Look, I've been a fan for nearly 20 years and I am still this enthusiastic about my club. Contrast that with Brett, who hates Everton more than any Liverpool fan does. For, <laughs> it's not for even my lie, 40th, <laughs> For my 40th birthday, I skipped Vegas and Mexico or any of those hot party places and I flew to London for a Chelsea Spurs match. I wanted nothing else because of how much this team has come to mean to me. Once you sing liquidator during the intros and you chant for 90 minutes with your newfound best friends in the shed end, and you sing blue as a color after yet another victory. And they did beat the Spurs. You'll feel born anew in your sporting life. I want that for you. Please come <laughs> join me. Listen to the Jim Jones of soccer. Everybody come to Chelsea. Take, but don't drink take the, the red pill. Take the red pill and wash it down with some blue Kool-Aid. You will be happy and born anew. Um, all right. So that obviously runs through the all the teams that we're going to talk about. Uh, if you're still with us, God bless you again. We hope that these three hours have been uh, well spent and that you're listening to it on at least 1.5x to shorten the time. Before we wrap up at the very end, I told him I was going to do this last week. So our producer, uh, Mikey Meatballs, Michael Sicoli, is going to come on. And after hearing us passionately pitch 14 or no, 13 different teams, he is going to be the first one at the Extra Points Podcast Network, who's not a soccer fan, to select a team. 
Let's so Michael, please come, come on, on out, and do the honors. Come on out. All right. Well, after long and hard thinking, um, I'm going to go with West Ham. Oh, okay. Oh, right. My own heart, Michael. You're the man. There we go. All right. I, tell us why. I don't have any reasoning for it. I just figured <laughs> let's go with West Ham. Great podcasting, Michael. Um, uh, I, you know, uh, West Hampton Beach on Long Island is uh, one of my favorite places uh, to go. Great beach. So I figured I'll go with the closest thing to it. So we're going West Ham. All right. I love it. New York Islanders and West Ham. Welcome your newest Hammer fans, Michael Sicoli. <laughs> there we go. Welcome, Michael. And this is the part where, where Toby's going to point out that Declan Rice is a former Chelsea product. <laughs> yes, yes. Enjoy Declan Rice while you still have him. And then uh, happy Zuma when you don't. Uh, all right, so we are going to bring on Sal and Damashek and Hench and everybody else. I'm dragging them onto this program because otherwise I'm not going to run their payroll. And uh, <laughs> they are also going to make their Premier League selection. So we'll be back to our normal format as soon as the Premier League is back to theirs and actually playing uh, Premier League games that don't get canceled over and over again. We think that'll be next week. We hope and pray that'll be next week. Um, and then we will supplement that with different people coming on to make their picks. So... In the meantime, guys, if you if I did disservice to your team and you're as passionate about your team as I am about Chelsea and you want to share your reasoning, and we'll, we will, in the um, in the name of fairness, share some of those reasons for your passion with our listener base as people make their selection. But until then, we wish you a great week. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to be relatively soccer-free unless you're going to watch Chelsea play a third division foe in the FA Club, Cup. And we will be back next week with our interchange of horrible advice backed with expert analysis. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, y'all. <laughs>